Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations with artists, I invite you to come visit David's Werner Gallery exhibitions in person. We're located in New York, Los Angeles, London, Paris, and Hong Kong. New exhibitions open each month. Plan your visit at davidswerner.com. Hey everybody, I want to tell you about another podcast I think you might like called Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso. Talk Easy is a different kind of weekly interview show. Every Sunday, Sam invites an artist, activist, or writer to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Talk Easy has released over 250 conversations with the folks shaping our culture today. Some of our favorites include Dev Hines, Quinta Brunson, Anita Hill, and Fran Leibowitz. If that sounds eclectic, it's because it is. Driven by an inquisitiveness about who we are and who we become, Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso is available wherever you get your podcasts. I am Cecilia Lemani and I'm a curator. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. I just, you know, find it so annoying to say the least that a critic would not you know, it would just dismiss the show because there are a majority of women artists, while, of course, for 120 years, it was the opposite. I'm Helen Molesworth, your host for this season. Every episode features a conversation with artists, curators, writers, designers, philosophers, filmmakers, and musicians about what it means to make things today. Hey, everybody, it's me, Helen. This week, I'm talking with Cecilia Almani, the director and chief curator of the High Line and the curator of Milk of Dreams, the 59th Venice Biennale. The show opened to wide acclaim last year, but I've always been more interested in the afterlife of a project. What happens after the press circus has died down and one has really had time to digest and analyze their work and its reception? I saw this conversation as something of an exit interview from one curator to another, a moment to really think about the unique nature of her show, from its social, political, and logistical contexts of a once-in-a-century global pandemic, to the quiet subversion of including a majority of women artists, to the scale and scope of the 200-plus-year-old biennial today. I hope you enjoy it. Cecilia, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Um, You have just done something. I was thinking about you this morning, preparing. You are at a string of firsts. You're the first Italian woman to curate the Venice Biennale. Yes. You're the first curator to curate a Biennale through a global pandemic. You're the first curator to... Uh, curate a Biennale that was not universally panned, but universally <laughs> loved. <laughs> You're the first curator to have three years instead of two years to do the job. And this is quite a lot. And so basically, um, before we start the interview in earnest, I just want to ask you, how are you? How are you doing? I'm feeling great. Uh, you know, I'm just 
back in your city after a little break that I took with my family. It's the first vacation I kind of do after, uh, as you say, three years of hard work for Venice. And I feel really good. You know, it's, uh, I was in Venice just recently for the closing of the show at the end of November, uh, which was also a bit sad, of course, uh, but also very fulfilling. It was full of people. Uh, we had a big party to celebrate it. And uh, now I'm, you know, ready to the next big adventure. Oh, it's, that's, that's good to hear. I'm, I'm very glad to hear it. I, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you now is that most of the press that happens around a big event like this happens before it opens or right in the days of the opening. And I've always found this very curious because, of course, before the show opens, you don't know what it looks like. You only know your aspirations for the show. And in the days of the opening, I myself was usually so exhausted and wasn't even really sure I knew yet what I was looking at that I had that I had done or I had participated in doing. And so I thought it might be interesting to interview people when they have a little more distance from doing something as monumental as this Venice. So in a way, I I sort of jokingly in my head, this is I kind of this is like your exit interview um, <laughs> <laughs> um, for all of the art world to hear. But I am really curious if you could talk a little bit about one of the things you set out to do and you stated this in a lot of the press that came before the show opened, was that you wanted to make a trans-historical show. And to that end, very many of the artists in your show were deceased, you know, so it wasn't yes. necessarily a show foregrounding the contemporary. Uh, Daniel Birnbaum in Art Forum even called it, quote, a subtle museological uh, <laughs> experience or experiment rather, excuse me, he, Daniel Birnbaum called it a subtle museological experiment. And I guess I just wanted to start with two basic questions, like why did you want to make a trans historical show? And why were you interested in including so many artists who were deceased, which is both real departures from the <laughs> way other curators have handled the Biennale? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, an excellent question and um, I'll try to answer in the complexity of my uh, thoughts. I think the first reason uh, was the status I was or the world was in or I found myself uh, in as I was preparing this exhibition or if you like the global condition, you know, when you start curating a show of this scale, one of the first thing that you start organizing are trips around the world to see uh, artists from all over the world. I had done literally half of a trip uh, to Scandinavia and then had to come back uh, because that was March 2020. So my entire exhibition had a very different genesis than uh, most of the previous ones. Uh, it was an exhibition basically done via Zoom and via uh, the internet and via uh, other means that were not the actual studio visits or research journeys. Um, and uh, somehow I was, as you said, allowed more time because the show was postponed. So in a way, I thought about um, 
I, I try to think of my exhibition not necessarily as the exhibition that happened in 2021 or 2022 or the 59th International Exhibition, but uh, more as uh, an exhibition that came after 58 editions and before hopefully many others. So in a way, I try to think of my show not just as a snapshot of the current time, which there is plenty because the exhibition Yes, it features many deceased artists, but also plenty of young, super young artists. Uh, and so there is a lot, of, um, a lot of space given to what's happening right now in the world. Uh, but at the same time, I wanted to sort of zoom out and think of my exhibition in a longer lineage of exhibitions that took place before me. And not necessarily the, you know, 10 years before me, but also going back much to a much, uh, to a faraway time. And in a way, it was so... Um, it also came about because in 2020, when the exhibition of architecture was postponed, we had the chance of doing an exhibition of the history of the Venice Biennale, which uh, the six curators of each disciplines of the, of the Biennale, you know, co-curated. And it was an exhibition that looked at the archive because the archive was the only thing that we could actually handle. And that kind of gave me if you like, a more historical perspective on, it, on this exhibition, which you could have also normally, but of course, normally you have zero time. So you don't have the luxury of studying the previous edition. So I try to, to think of my show, of this exhibition, again, in a longer lineage. And that's why I wanted to also um, focus on histories and stories that were not that had not been told in previous editions um, because of different reasons, consciously, unconsciously. And so uh, at that point, I came up with the idea of creating these uh, um, little uh, mini exhibitions that I call time capsules that punctuate the larger exhibition and that the viewer encounters as they walk through the show. Uh, but they are mini exhibitions that bring together, together mostly um, artists from the 20th century uh, and are grouped around some of the themes of the exhibition, but from a historical perspective. Uh, because in a way, I like the idea of putting together echoes and rhymes and affinities between uh, contemporary artists and historical artists. Of course, it's nothing new. Um, and also many big contemporary exhibitions have done it recently, but for me, it was very much the heart and the kind of the roots of the exhibition. Yeah, those time capsules, as you described them, were so remarkable to me. And they were remarkable for a few reasons. And one, and I hope this doesn't seem lesser than, because I thought it was so effective, was the way they were offered to the viewer was completely different than the way the contemporary materials were offered to the viewer. So you really felt like you stepped into a different kind of space. There were vitrines, there was carpet, there was wall color, there was a kind of sumptuousness mm -hmm. about the time capsules. Things were salon hung, they were hung very close together, whereas in the contemporary space you had two or three artists in a room, you know, more of the, the kind of installation strategies that we we know quite well from other biennials and, and museum exhibitions. How did you think about handling the material, the contemporary art material and the historical material so differently? And how, how did you come to this very almost luxurious uh, <laughs> uh, installation of the historical yeah. material? 
Well, it was a, you know, it was a conjuncture of two factors. The first one is that I wanted to and include historical materials, and I never wanted to mix it. I knew I wanted to create some spaces that were just focused on the historical material. And then on the other side, if you like a more pragmatic side, um, it was also a way, as I was thinking of the exhibition design and the journey through the space, especially at the Arsenale, which is such a massive mm space and so dominant and really, really hard to yes. break down. And the idea of creating spaces that could offer the viewers a more intimate way of viewing, a more, you know, personal, uh, less, if you like, spectacular uh, way of uh, viewing art. And so it was also a device that I used to break the, first of all, the linearity of the Arsenale, but also to sort of alternate rhythm and pace. Usually, um, again, I think because of the space, you tend to have, uh, and this is a generalization, but you tend to have very big installations or, you know, showstoppers. But at the Arsenale in particular, it's really hard to have a more personal and intimate form of viewing just because of the space, because there are no walls, you've got to build everything. So these capsules help me create a like a rhythm, like a, a like um, an alternance between um, openness and closeness, and you know uh, just a different forms of proceeding through the space. So it was both conceptually important for the show, but it became also a tool to create micro universes that would allow also for a painting that was like uh, 10 by 15 inches to to have its own space and its own room to breathe. I have to say one of the things that I found very remarkable about your show, which I, you know, I think liked more than any, any biennial show I've been to, um, which I offered to you, it's the, it's the highest praise I can give you, you know, like, it's really sort of extraordinary. Um, Cause usually I, like everyone else have the knives out ready to dissect <laughs> every, every flaw. Um, but going into it, I remember thinking like that everything I know that you had done is on the high line, which is big outdoors, super public, you know? And I thought, well, here's someone who really understands scale Here's someone who understands the public, but how is she going to handle all of this interior space, all of this enclosure, <laughs> and also all of this comparing and contrasting? Because at the High Line, my experience of it is more a kind of a moment, and then you walk, and then you have another moment. But there's not mm -hmm. this game that we play in museums so much of close looking and the building up of themes over uh, over yeah. both time and space. And so I'm curious, how did you know how to do it? Mm -hmm. Like, have you been secretly organizing <laughs> complex shows in your apartment in New York? <laughs> like, how did you, how did you know how to pull off all of that intimacy? I knew you could pull mm -hmm. off the, the, the big <laughs> statement pieces, but yeah. how did you get to the intimacy? I think in a way is uh, what I miss the most by doing, by being a public art curator, as you said, at the High Line, I have a huge space with no walls, no ceilings. I have the seat as a pedestal or as a canvas that I can use. But in a way, maybe 
because of that, I, you know, I was very uh, eager to have a space where I could hang a small paintings or a little sculptures in a vitrine. And so, but besides that, I think, you know, I spent, I spent a lot of time in looking at the previous editions and how previous curators and also architecture in the architecture uh, Biennale, how they use the space. Uh, and in a way, you know, you have two very different spaces, right? Because you have the central pavilion at the Giardini, which is in a way a more traditional YQ space or museological space, which you can't really alter that much. You know, you can change the circulation. But my point was actually to open it up to the way it's been in the past in a very clear, uh, as much as I could, clear way to allow for a journey that was clear also to the general viewer. Uh, and then the Arsenale was very hard, but I, again, I tried to, to think of this idea of the rhythm and to, 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 to alternate and contrast these two very different ways of appreciating art. And I must say, I also um, decided to work with an exhibition designer team. They're called Forma Fantasma. They helped me. They're Italian designers, they're excellent, and they help me in designing, especially the time capsules, for which there is a degree of care and, you know, attention to details that normally you don't have in a show of that scale, just because there is no time, yeah, there is no money. Yeah. <laughs> so, so in a way, I, I made a decision in the beginning of the, of, you know, of curating this show not to work with an architect but to work with an exhibition designer. No, I have nothing against architects, but I've never worked with architects because I don't, unlike you and many other colleagues, I don't work in a museum. So I work on a piece of architecture already, the Highline. So I don't necessarily, you know, work or collaborate with architects. And I feel like in the past, I've seen great exhibitions, but sometimes the architecture was overpowering. Um, because of course, if you work with, with, with architects, they want, to leave their mark. And so I knew that I didn't want that. Uh, and so I knew that I needed help, especially when it came to these time capsules, which were, you know, curated to the detail. And of course, they, they came up with great ideas of, you know, using carpets and vitrines that normally, again, you don't see in, in exhibitions of that scale. One of the things that was also so great about the show was that it set out its aims and themes very clearly like there was no guessing you were very clear that you were very you were really interested in this theme of transformation whether it was sort of along the line of metamorphosis as a as a you know historical mythological idea a, a, a slipping of the boundaries between human and technology between gender you know a kind of fluidity of gender across a grand spectrum and uh and the boundary between human beings and and the planet and nature these these seem to be really the driving themes and concerns of the show and in the contemporary spaces each of the rooms was often a pairing of two three four artists you know who were working on a similar problem but maybe coming at it from different angles and these pairings or groupings of the contemporary work even I found when I didn't quote unquote like an artist because mm -hmm. one has preferences that it didn't matter. My taste got a little suppressed in the show and I'm always <laughs> very happy to have my taste suppressed, right? Because I could see 
that artists were working on similar ideas, you know, or the mm -hmm. same idea, but in very different ways. But I was curious for you um, whether or not in at the end when it was over and you saw all of that, were there any of pairings that behaved differently than you thought they were going to either you walked in and thought, well, that is so much more revelatory. Like I see X, Y, and Z that I couldn't even imagined I would see. Mm -hmm. Or if you had a moment where you walked in and thought like, huh, that just did not turn out the way I thought it was going to. <laughs> Do you know, like what happens? I mean, I mean, then this is the exit interview part. Like yeah, yeah, you have yeah. all this aspiration going in, all this planning, and then there's the intractability of all those art objects doing whatever the fuck they want to do, not what you wanted them to do. Yeah. Um, I think I would say I did have a moment where I walked, or actually, I take it back. I, there are also a lot of things, as, as you know, as a curator, that you don't necessarily realize or you haven't thought about when you do a show. And then when the show opens and people come to you and say, oh, that pairing was amazing. And you're like, oh, great. Actually, it was kind of random but i'm glad it worked out uh there was a space uh in the arsenale kind of up, up the second half of the show where uh, there was introduced by this very large um painting by louis bonnet of uh, women um like again with milk coming out of the breast and then this Raffaella vogel with a giraffe and then merely this amazing korean artist that had this machine that kind of projected liquid and it became kind of the liquid or the body liquid um room or section and I, I, it wasn't necessarily uh curated or organized as such but it turned out to be uh, in that way and that was one of the rooms that was either very loved or very hated <laughs> especially by male critics uh but it was a, it was completely serendipitous that happened to be like that so uh, that, in a way, is uh, is a good example. And on the other side, you know, I would say, you know, for me, it was very important to create pairings or, you know, to juxtapose works because, I mean, without being too superficial, because I think it's our job as curator to be able to tell stories uh, through, um, through the relationships that happen and get created among artworks and different artistic voices. So I made a point of not necessarily giving, you know, one room to one artist, but to actually force that dialogue. And it's, you know, as, as you know, it's, it's a lot of work because artists don't necessarily like that and they want their own space. But it turned out, you know, we didn't have any <laughs> major crisis. Uh, but another room that I feel like people had lots of comments on was the central room of the central pavilion where they sort of, crystal sculptures of Andra Osuta were paired with the monochromatic woolen like knitted pictures of Rosemary Trockel. And that for me was a very, very important room since the beginning. Um, it is probably the most important room in the central pavilion. Uh, and I feel like it also generated a sort of ambivalent feeling. Some people loved it and other people did not see the connections. And for me, the connections were not necessarily between the two artists, but they sort of introduced two of the main themes of the show, you know, again, the metamorphosis of bodies and transformations of bodies. And these monochromatic paintings on the, on the walls almost look like these kind of digitalized pictures or like uh, screensavers, but where, of course, 
made by Wallen, but in, in Wallen, they worked many other things. So um, I think it's, you know, it's a risk that you take to, to, to pair and to combine different voices. And then, you know, also our job gets to a certain point and you cannot force necessarily a meaning onto onto the space it's also up to the viewer to decide what to take out of it mm. i found the pairing of trackle and suta very interesting because i didn't understand it until the end of the show mm. which was also i thought quite uh clever in a way because to me that felt very cinematic like mm-hmm. i got to the end of the show and i was like oh i get the beginning now now i understand this opening gambit around <laughs> um what would it look like if we understood the early avant-garde of the 20th century as predominantly generated by female production, by women Mm -hmm. artists. And so you would get, in fact, on the one hand, Trockel's, you know, deeply strange relationship to craft and the some of the oldest material we have, like wool, you know, like, you know, and uh, Andra's play with glass, also one of the oldest materials Uh we have, right? We have glass objects from you know, the, the beginning of human making, uh, the, these objects exist still and of sand becomes glass is the ultimate transformation. I think you learn about it as a kid. It's like quite magic, like, oh, my God, the glass is still moving. Um, and then she has that kind of cyborgy, you know, the future body or is it the body that's pre-evolution into human beings or uh-huh. post-evolution in as uh, human beings it's such a strange configuration um you know there was something you said that you know everyone knows that the show was overwhelmingly made up of female artists and that pairing that opening really set you off on that path um and you you have said that the show wasn't about women artists but a show that featured women artists. And I wonder if you, now that it's over and it's done and it's been received and you don't have to be defensive in any way about it, what does it mean that that show happened with all those women artists? Like, where are you in your heart and your intellect with that experiment that you just pulled off? Well, I hope it's not an experiment, but it's uh, it's a sign that uh, you can curate and organize a, sh- I would say, a good show uh, featuring a majority of women artists. And, you know, I know sometimes it sounds defensive or it sounded defensive, but I really mean it, meaning that I've encountered so many such a big pushback, especially in Italy, you know, not, not for sure, not in America, but uh, of sort of downgrading the show or kind of um, not wanting to engage in the show because it's a show with a majority of women artists. And I, I, I just, you know, find it so annoying to say the least that a critic would not, you know, it would just dismiss the show because there are a majority of women artists while, of course, for, 120 years, it was the opposite. So, but the point was also 
and here I'm not being, you know, like defensive, but to to create a show that brought together some of today's most vibrant and exciting voices that happen to be women. Uh, when, you know, there are men in the show, when I wanted to invite a man because it made sense in the show, of course, I invited a man. So it, I hope it can also be seen most importantly, as an exhibition of contemporary art. And mm. then when you find out um, that there are a majority of women, that's great. You know, it, I think it shows that you can do an amazing show like this. But it's when I, when I, I mean, what I mean by saying it's not an exhibition about women artists, um, I mean that it's not necessarily an exhibition about the history of feminism, like there have been incredible exhibitions uh, curated by uh, amazing curators all over the world, but it's a contemporary art show. It's a biennial that brings together a plurality of voices that can cannot really be defined under the umbrella necessarily of women artists, because also at that point we need to define what women artists uh, means. And, and so by bringing together over 200 artists, it's really hard to just label them. And mm. some of them, of course, can be, or would stay, you know, they're hardcore feminists. Others would be, you know, fully rejecting that label. And others would even say, you know, I'm, we're all tired of being compared. Those, those issues are not relevant anymore. I want to show a great set of paintings and that's why I'm in this show. So it's very complex. And when you try to explain, it turns out, you know, it ends up by, uh, simplifying it a bit, but uh, it's it's certainly being uh, it's certainly being a journey also for myself to try to process mm. all the reactions to it. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I've never done anything on the scale that you've just operated on. I mean, it's quite extraordinary, and I realize that. I feel sheepish now. I've read only the reviews in English, right? <laughs> so um, I don't know what your Italian, uh, you know, colleagues and peers how they saw the show because I don't, I don't read Italian. Mm -hmm. um, but I was, I have been thinking about your show, and I've been thinking about it in relationship to Connie Butler's show, Whack, Art in the uh, Feminist Revolution, and. That show was so revelatory to me and so many people in the field when it came out. Mm -hmm. I mean, many people I know, we just used that exhibition catalog, became like our acquisitions yeah. wish list. You know, we were just like, oh, OK, here we go. Like, we are going to do this work now and change the the nature of these permanent collections. And I wondered, and I do think this might happen to your show, it, that history will have to see it in some way as emerging at a moment when the category woman is under great pressure. Mm -hmm. um, it's under pressure from a misogynistic, fascistic right wing. It's under pressure from a progressive left wing that's, you know, trying to undo the strictures of gender. Yeah. Um, it's, it's also the category of woman is under great pressure. I mean, this is a show that this is the show that was on view when this country overturned a woman's right to an abortion in this mm -hmm. country. I mean, it's really quite, it's cognitive dissonance to hold these two things together. But I think that there's something landmark about this exhibition. And I'm very curious to see what, what its ripple effects will be for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Um you know, for me, in a way, you know, I 
I think as a curator or when you do a show like this, you, you always think of what the legacy of your exhibition is. And that's something that you, you do keep in mind as you go through the crazy process of putting together this show. You know, how will my show be remembered? Uh, and that's also why it was hard for me. Like, I, unfortunately, an easy way of remembering the show will be, oh, the women's biennial. And I don't, wa- I don't like this label, you know. I don't want to be from this exhibition and the amazing artists pre- present in this exhibition to be reduced to that because it's much more than that. That's why I have this kind of contradictory feeling about defining it just according to that. Um, and I also hope it will be remembered as a, I don't want to say as a show about the pandemic because it's not a show about the pandemic, but it is a show that was generated through a very complex time. And, you know, I've, I've realized how easy it is to forget. Um, you know, sometimes I look at the pictures of the, of the installations were all wearing masks. I mean, it was tough, you know, it was like people were getting sick and it was just, it was March. And now, of course, we think it's, it's gone and this is a show that happened, you know, normally. But the conditions in which this show was generated, besides the practical conditions, which were very complex. But if you think of all these young artists that made work in those conditions during those times, I hope that that will translate in, you know, who, however people will remember the show. But it's important that to me it was, I made a point of, at least for myself, to remember, to keep in mind that all these artists work under incredible, you know, stricture and stress and very, very complicated conditions in these last two years. And I think it's visible in some of the works and I hope it will be, you know, remembered also for that. Mm. It's interesting because, of course, I wasn't on the producing end. I was only on the receiving end. Mm-hmm. And what I felt very strongly walking through the show was that the difficulty was outweighed by the extra year and mm-hmm. all the focus. Like that one of the things I felt as we emerged out of the pandemic and your show was one of the examples I would use is that all that capacity, that all the distraction of our lives mm-hmm. that we normally love, the parties, the dinners, the all of that that was no longer in place gave us all much more time artists make great work. You mm-hmm. made a great show. You know, like that this was a time of great focus for people. And yeah. that, I mean, I kind of wondered, like, you know, do you think it should happen every three years? Like, <laughs> do you, you know, like, is there anything to take from the difficulty of the working method yeah. that's actually quite positive and to take that into the future? I mean, for sure. I think, you know, also to be precise normally you have a year and four months i had two years and four months (laughs) so not even three years Uh, but you know i feel like i feel for adriano (laughs) you know i I applaud him but it's uh it's really a huge huge uh, project because of different reasons not just the space but i do think you know the extreme conditions in which we found ourselves really like i i thought about I wanted to do a very strict, strict thematic show because that was the only thing that kept my mind out, like not to go crazy because, mm. you know, you, you do this show, you raise money, you have to do the catalog and then you don't even know if the show is going to happen because, right. you know, a year before the opening, who knows, who knew. 
And so the only thing that kept me focused was to do a show that had, you know, a skeleton that had a structure that had a, a, like um, a theme that had a very specific, uh, also visual theme in 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 its uh, in in the way the space was articulated. And I think that was for me as I curated the show. But I'm sure it was very similar, as you say, for artists because they that was the project they were working on. And of course, normally you have a thousand other projects you work on, but besides exhibitions and, you know, the, the noise of our life is so loud normally that it's hard to focus. So it was an extremely uh, unique time. So it, I, I do hope that, <laughs> that we consider nominating the next curator a bit earlier, mm. uh, but I, I, I definitely use that extra year of time to, you know, study and to do more research. I, it wouldn't have been the same show. Right. And I had just one year. So I have one last question for you. Um, and it's, uh, uh, well, I'll just ask it. I won't even do a preamble. So you have worked with now twice one of the most iconic contemporary art objects of our contemporary moment. I'm talking about Simone Lee's Brick House. Mm -hmm. Um, and if we believe that art is contextual, right, and that it, its meanings are gleaned not only from its internal structure, but from the the place in which we encounter it, I'm just really curious. Like, it was so mind-blowing. I remember being in a car, I rented a car in Chelsea and found myself, you know, headed uptown on 10th Avenue, not expecting to see brick house from the vantage point of the driver's seat of a car in Manhattan and being absolutely like just blown away by <laughs> that object, this its successful placement. I can only imagine all of the conversations, all of the work to 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 cite an object that specifically. And then you open the arsenale with it too. <laughs> so I'm just curious, as the only person in the world who's been able to install that object twice, can you talk to us a little bit about how it changed for you and, and what, what, what it was like to have two go-rounds installing Brick House? <laughs> well, I'll start with a fun fact. Um, Simone Lee was the first artist I invited for the Biennale. Actually, I remember inviting her in person because it was still January and the pandemic hadn't started. Everyone else I invited via email or via Zoom. So uh, it was the first artist I invited. I knew very, very clearly, distinctly that I wanted Brick House. Although, you know, after Brick House, she had made amazing works. You know, remember that it was 2020, 2020. So, but I knew I wanted to start with that. And that, Brick House was the last work to enter the exhibition space on the Friday before the Monday opening. Because aye, the shipping aye, 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 was... Aye, aye. And so imagine that for about seven months, uh, you know, starting from the fall of 2021, I lived in this state of, of complete panic, whether the first sculpture of my show would make it to Venice by boat, by doing a crazy journey around the Mediterranean Sea. And by, you know, it's a massive sculpture entering the military area of the Arsenale and being so. So I, I, but after a while, I, 
I, you know, I was at peace with myself because I, there is nothing I could do about it. I invited her a long, long time ago, but in a way it was really nice because uh, it was kind of the same destiny of her other outdoor sculptures in front of the American Pavilion uh, satellite, which was sent, I believe, two months before ours, before we first, but they came to Venice exactly the same day. Oh, wow. And it was such a beautiful and powerful moment. And Timon said they were meant to arrive together. They're like sisters. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think Simone is, of course, an incredible artist. And I'm very humbled that, um, you know, I was able to work with her in two major occasions, like the Highline and uh, and 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 Venice and you know Brickhouse. I you know we we really followed the making of it every every week in Philadelphia. So I was I really can you know recognize the traces and the imprints and everything. So it's it, it's part of the family. Mm. And what do you think was the difference for you between it outdoors and indoors? I mean, on mm-hmm. the one hand, that's a it's a very pedestrian question but what does it signify to be so public and outside in manhattan Mm -hmm. versus to be in a room with a ceiling to be in an enclosure how did it change for you it was it turned out to be very very different i think on the highland of course one would read it as a monument and we were also in the midst of lots of conversations about you know, who has the right to be commemorated on a plane, in a public space, in a square, uh, function more like um, uh, like a beacon. You know, it was something like a, like, a, like a beacon that you would recognize in the city, in the very, very busy and noisy um, cityscape of New York City, above an avenue, so in the middle of Hudson Yards. In Venice, instead, it became, uh, if you like, much more intimate. And in a way, you know, she, she talked, of course, Simone talks a lot about also ideas of domesticity and protection and what these cupboard sculptures do and evoke. And in a way, I think together with Belki Sayon, who was the other artist that was paired with her, uh, it kind of generated a completely different, maybe more mythical or more um, secretive um, sort of um, atmosphere in the first room of the Arsenale. So in, in a way, a very, a very, very different feeling. But I think, of course, all great artworks have the ability of, uh, you know, of gaining different meanings and generating different atmospheres and contexts according to different um, exhibitions. So I, I look forward to seeing the next iteration of uh, Brick House somewhere uh, somewhere else. Yeah, I do think you're right, though. I think in at the High Line, it 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 was a conversation about monuments, and in um, in the Arsenale, I felt like, oh, it's a talisman, which I mm-hmm. think of something more that you carry close to your chest or in your pocket, or you know. And I marveled at how something so large could feel like something yeah. something so intimate. It was it yeah. was really striking to me. So you you alluded before the next the next curator of the Biennale has been chosen. It's Adriano Pedrosa from um, Maspi in uh, the Museum of Modern Art in Sao Paulo. Um, do you have any uh, 
you have any words of advice? President, presidents <laughs> usually write letters to one another and uh, leave them on the I, desk. Do you I have any advice? Him, and I said, good luck. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I, I'm sure he will do an amazing job. And, uh, uh, you know, he's such a talented curator and uh, he has created many shows that were maybe even bigger than this. So um, I think he comes to a very specific time right, right now in Italy. You know, the government is different. Is a right-wing government, um, you know, the institution itself, of course, it's the same, but all around us, we're surrounded by a very sharp uh, right turn. So I, you know, I have no idea if you will keep that in mind, but it's, uh, it will be a different show because of that as well. So, uh, but I'm, I'm very excited to go back as a spectator, <laughs> <laughs> pay my ticket uh, and just go and visit. But I, you know, I know he will do a great show. I hope that you don't have to pay for your next biennial ticket. I, <laughs> I probably will. <laughs> Knowing it, I probably will. But that's okay. Um, I want to just thank you for being on the podcast and thank you for giving us such a really just such a wonderful show. Your um, what appears to be your natural uh, optimism shines through every time I talk to you. I'm I always find it quite remarkable to Julia. So thank you so much. Thank you, Alan. It was great to be with you. Thank you. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. If you like this episode, please follow, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It really does help the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you join us here next time.